millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. Today we are talking about the American dream, which is one of those elusive ideas, and it probably appears most stark or most plainly, I guess, in literature. And you could think about classic texts like The Life of Davy Crockett or Ralph Waldo Emerson's Essay on Nature or even Thoreau's Walden and Harriet Jacobs' Life of a Slave Girl. And in the Gilded Age, there's books like The Education of Henry Adams and Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer. All of those books grapple with the idea of the American dream. Today, we're actually looking at a 1930s text that reveals much about the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, as well as the 20th and 21st centuries as well, and that text is Gone with the Wind. Almost everyone knows the story of Scarlett O'Hara and the Civil War burning of Atlanta, and the 1939 film became the audio and visual icon of that moment. But much of Gone with the Wind takes place during Reconstruction and the Gilded Age. And to dissect all of that, I'm joined today by Professor Sarah Churchwill of the University of London School of Advanced Studies. She is an expert on the intersection of literature with reality and American history. Her previous book, Careless People, dissected the story told by F. Scott Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby, and her 2018 book, Behold America, which gets considerable mention in our discussion today of Gone with the Wind, explored the idea of the American dream alongside America First and the election of Donald Trump. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks so much. Gone with the Wind, right. Okay, a story about the Civil War Old South, the burning of Atlanta, the collapse of the Confederacy. That's how I always think about it. Um, Your book does a great job to remind us that at least half of the book takes place after the war, and you make a really compelling case that the text has more to say about today than it does about maybe even the Civil War. So tell us... What's so important about Gone with the Wind? Mm. Well, I, I, thank you, first of all. And, um, and, and yeah, I think that it, um, it certainly has more to tell us about the 20th century in, in America than it does about the Civil War. It's because it's deeply inaccurate about the Civil War in all kinds of really important ways, um, like suggesting that enslaved people preferred being enslaved. Like we can start with that and, and move on, right? Um, and um, so it's, it's a you know, deeply distorted version of the Civil War it, and even more uh, distorted in its version of the aftermath of the Civil War, as you just said. Um, uh, half of the novel takes place during the, the period known as Reconstruction. It's deeply um, uh, inaccurate about all of that um, stuff. What I think it's very 
inadvertently good at, but what I think it's useful for and why I think it's worth paying close attention to it and why I spend all the time on it um, is the United States, as I don't have to tell you, um, is good at telling the history of how we became the United States and how we reunited. And we're good at telling stories about union. And we have a lot of myths about our union. And we have a lot of sayings about our union. And we grow up with mottos about our union and the Pledge of Allegiance. And, but we're really bad at telling the history of our divisions. And, I, and there are histories of our divisions. And they are deep. And they keep coming up. And then they keep catching us by surprise. And um, and and Trump once again, you know, when Trump, everybody's like, oh my God, what's going on? America, the United States, so divided. And I was like, well, there's a long history here. And so my kind of contention, if you will, is that Gone with the Wind inadvertently captures the history of those divisions better than any other single text that I'm aware of. And part of the reason I think it does that is because it captures the mythologies around the divisions. And it also, because it's fiction, it also captures the emotions and the fantasies and the desires that drive the myths and the divisions. So you can do a history of the divisions that's a political history that just explains why there are these political differences and how, you know, how the Civil War came about or how, you know, the fights over the New Deal or the shifts over the Republican and Democrat alignment over the course of the 20th century. And those histories are out there and they're incredibly important. And obviously I draw on them. Um, for this story. But what I think fiction, like Gone with the Wind, gives us is, as I say, is, is the emotions that sometimes a lot of that history, you know, necessarily won't capture because, it, because it's using different kinds of documentary sources. So ultimately, for me, what Gone with the Wind tells us about our moment right now is that I think that it captures what I call the, the genesis myth of white victimhood, the origin of the story that says that white people are the victims of the Civil War, its aftermath, and, and any kind of political gains by Black people in the United States. And this idea that white people are always being victimized, which is very much at the heart of our political narratives right now, in my view. Um, you, what Gone with the Wind does is capture the moment that that was born, and it was born in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And then Gone with the Wind is one of its most important iterations, kind of flowering of that story. I thought we would might we might soft pedal into all this, but seeing as we're going <laughs> right straight in. into it, uh, yeah. <laughs> seeing as we're going straight in, I, I'm just going to ask a historiographical question. So there's this theme that runs through the book and the Dunning School historiography, which if people don't know about, we can talk about a little bit more. But there's this theme about redemption, and it's something the Gilded Age and Progressive Era historians have used to frame the turn of the, the century. And I'm thinking here specifically of a book by Jackson Lears, who's a historian at Rutgers. His book is called Rebirth of the Nation. And it really takes up this idea that you play around with in, in terms of Gone with the Wind. So how does Gone with the Wind play on these themes of revival and redemption? Mm. I'm really glad you asked that. I think it's such an important question. And it's one that gets lost in the shuffle a lot and because there's so much to talk about we're talking about 160 years of really complex history and then the mythologizing around that so there's layers and layers so it's it's really difficult and and part of the project of the book fundamentally is just to kind of try to tease fact from fiction and do some debunking <laughs> to a great extent um but redemption uh often gets gets dropped out of sight because of all of the, the the stuff that's going on. Redemption is is the name that white supremacist Southerners gave to the movement that immediately, or the moment that immediately followed what was called Reconstruction. Reconstruction was Lincoln's name for the project during the war. He gave the, the 
what would be obviously the necessary project of rebuilding the country after the war. He gave that the name Reconstruction and that name held even after his assassination. So the, the, the Reconstruction was the attempt to create a multiracial democracy in the aftermath of emancipation, in the aftermath of the Civil War. It failed spectacularly. It was a noble experiment, but it failed very, very badly for the simple reason that white supremacists who had gone to war to defend their right to enslave Black uh, African-Americans were not prepared to uh, welcome them as equal citizens um, who shared government with them. So it just failed. Um, the way that it failed was with the restoration of white supremacy in the South and with the withdrawal of federal troops from the North. Um, and at that point, as white supremacism was gradually and then very quickly um, reinstated across the South, the white supremacists, and everybody needs to remember, these are literally the same individuals who just fought the Civil War, right? This isn't the next generation. This is the same people. Um, they uh, called it redemption because they felt that they had redeemed the, their society, their government, from what they considered to be what they called the horrors of Negro rule. And by Negro rule, they meant one African-American legislator. Um, one African-American in government to them constituted Negro rule and justified uh, violence justified murder, justified coup d'etat. The insurrection in January 6th was on January 6th, 2021, was not our first. And there were um, violent ousters, there were overturnings of democratic, um, small d democratic outcomes. Um, and they called that redemption. Now, obviously, that has strong religious overtones as well. And I think it's important that we capture that because for them, they felt that this was not just. Um, that they had kind of economically or politically redeemed their narrative, but that as it were, God had come in and said, you're justified, you're right, I support white supremacism, good for you, off you go. And that kind of religious justification, which was maybe more implicit um, in, in the period in which Gone with the Wind emerged in the 1930s, has obviously come out loud and proud now. And so, you know, it went underground at various points, but that that strain of religious self-righteousness um, runs through the history that I'm telling. And so I think that 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 idea of redemption captures a lot of the complexity of that really, really powerfully. Yeah, I'm just going to refer people to the other podcasts on uh, Protestant mission uh, missionaries, Catholic missionaries, and and also the, the the connection between war and redemption among uh, religious uh, ministers at the time. So yeah. this also does seem like a good point to talk about Margaret Mitchell, who, of course, is the author of the book, Come with the Wind. Uh, what are her intentions? I mean, does she have these intentions to uh, redeem the, the, the old South or at least, you know, um, uh, resituate the new South in, 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 in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era or, or even into the 20th century? That the latter was much more of her conscious project. Um, she was much more interested in the story of the New South, um, as it was called, as you've just implied, um, uh, which was, you know, what was built in the in the wake of the destruction of the antebellum old South. In, in her view, the New South was she, she also wasn't necessarily interested, though, in redeeming the New South. She wanted to tell a story about the rise of the New South. And she saw Scarlet and Rhett. Her, they're, they're her protagonists, but they're by no means her heroes. And it's important that people 
recognize that. The film obviously, as films, Hollywood films almost always do, um, you know, will heroicize and sentimentalize the characters more, uh, you know, than, than in this case, than the novel did. Scarlett's very much an anti-heroine. She's a very problematic character and, and Mitchell is very clear about her flaws. And for her, those failings are kind of emblematic of the New South. So she tells us, so Scarlett's a very representative figure and the representatives of the Old South in the novel are, in the story, I should say, are Ashley and Melanie Wilkes, Ashley Wilkes and Melanie Hamilton. They are the Old South and it's notable that they die out, right? Melanie literally dies and Ashley kind of fades away into irrelevance. Um, and so that that's how, and she did, she did that very consciously. We know that she wrote letters about it and it's very clearly patterned in the novel. So it's the kind of thing that doesn't happen by accident. She associates Scarlet, with, she says that Scarlet was born at the same time as Atlanta and that she was like the city that she was born with. And so she makes these very explicit linkings in the story. Um, but she saw problems with the rise of the New South and, 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 and that she understood that it was, you know, too materialistic, that it was rapacious, that it was grasping. And so that, so she thinks there's a critique of that in the story somewhere. I think her critique is um, insufficient, let's say. Um, but certainly from her point of view, that was, you know, one of her intentions. But her, her main intention was that she thought that the, that the, um, the sentimental plantation fiction that she had grown up with that sentimentalized the antebellum old south was in her view way too sentimental and way too mythologizing and it may come as a shock to readers today to hear that margaret mitchell thought that gone with the wind was an unsentimental novel about the old south but she did she genuinely believed that because scarlet and rhett are unsentimental characters and in the plantation fiction that she grew up with they had very victorian stereotyped um, you know, chivalric, gallant, heroic, blonde heroes and the, you know, um, equally stereotypical, uh, demure, um, you know, chaste, uh, you know, uh, uh, everybody knows the, the stereotype of the 19th century heroine, right? So they're, so the women are weak and they're clinging and they're, and they're pure and they're chaste and they're moral. And, um, and so she could see, she was very good on, pretty good on, whiteness on southern whiteness she was very 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 not good on blackness right on black uh, identity and black culture and black history but she was pretty good on white history and she was interesting on white history and and so what she wanted to do was to tell a story that she thought was more realistic because she made Rhett and Scarlett more realistic humans which they are um than any of those people they have you know multiple failings they're much more interesting than those characters in the plantation fiction she grew up with. The problem is, is that she puts them then against an idealized backdrop that she didn't recognize was idealized, not just idealized, but falsified and deeply perniciously falsified. So she has these realistic characters in the foreground and then this completely unrealistic background. And that's kind of the problem with the story. I am fascinated by Scarlett from reading the book. I hadn't ever given much thought to her character, actually. I always thought she was uh, I don't know that sort of Victorian stereotype, but oh, the more no. I read your book, yeah, <laughs> the more I read your book, the more I thought she was like a 21st century Karen. Yeah, you know that 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 you know stereotype of the you know the, the Karen character, the popular expression. And another part of me feels like she's this very modern uh, woman, you know, uh, very you know um, self determined, self aware. So how how do you think? that she kind of fits in today's culture. I mean, how do we decipher Scarlett O'Hara for the 20th and 21st centuries? I literally had a section on Scarlett O'Hara as Karen. 
Um, You're kidding me. No, I'm not. A hundred percent. And I, and I debated for a long time because when I was writing the book, the Karen thing was right at the forefront of the culture. And I completely agree with you. She's totally a Karen. The reason I ended up not including it was because I thought it would date the analysis because I think Karen as a shorthand isn't going to last. That's my, my take as a historian. Um, So I thought, you know, I'm going to have to explain what a Karen is as if modern readers don't know so that future readers would understand it. And then I was like, well, will that actually achieve anything other than belaboring a shorthand that modern readers will get anyway? You know what I mean? So anyway, so, but I literally, so yes, I do think she's a Karen. Um, Exactly. She's the kind of person who calls the manager if a black person, you know, looks the wrong way at her. Um, And, but thinks she's the victim of that. (laughs) Um, And, um, and, and of course, all of the shorthands that, that we now use Karen to mean in the way that, that she's a, a, a white person who's unaware of her structural power, um, but uses it all of the time. Um, and, and so the, um, so yes, uh, to that, um, I do think she's very much a 20th century character parachuted into an antebellum and re- reconstruction setting. She's very much a 1930s heroine. And I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book. That's why she translated to screen in the thirties so easily. Um, so readily because she is a 1930s heroine. And if you take her out of her crinoline, you could put her in a Howard Hawks movie, or you could put her in a, well, you wouldn't put her in Capra because he's too sentimental, but anything that had some acidity, um, you know, you could put her right into uh, that kind of, you know, she could be a Barbara Stanwyck kind of character. Like Barbara Stanwyck could have played that role. Um, uh, Hepburn, you know, any of the people who went for it actually could have played it. Um, Betty Davis obviously was dying for the role and would have been fantastic at it. So um, the, so, so she's definitely an early 20th century heroine. I think that, and, and, and part of what makes it interesting to read her story then is that it's not just that she's parachuted into a 19th century context. It's that what becomes interesting there is the way that, that all of her 20th century psychology, which is kind of proto-feminist, keeps hitting the impediments of 19th century society. And that's what Margaret Mitchell was interested in. Margaret Mitchell was consciously interested in that. Her mother was a suffragette. Margaret Mitchell saw herself as a feminist. People around her saw her as a feminist. Uh, she self-identified in that way. So she see, but she didn't see Scarlett as a feminist heroine. She did also see her as an anti-heroine. Now, I personally think that that's a feminist take. Not everybody will agree with me on that, but I think it's more feminist to allow your women to be human than it is to try to make them heroic in the name of feminism. So that, and that's my personal version of feminism. So the, the ways in which her agency is thwarted, the ways in which she has to make really complicated and, and immoral and unethical choices to get what she wants, but that she's in a real world context that she has to make these difficult choices. That's where I enjoy her story the most. And that's where I like her the most. Even when she makes really bad choices, I find her more interesting um, in those contexts. The only thing I differ with you on is that I don't think she's self-aware at all. <laughs> and that's actually really important. And that's why I would say she's not that 21st century. She has no idea about her own desire. She has no idea about her own. She's not in, at all in touch with her own, uh, um, not just her own sexual desire, which she's completely out of touch with, but, um, or any sense of sexuality. She thinks she wants Ashley, who's completely sexless. Um, and, and Rhett is sexy as hell. And she thinks she doesn't want him, but she does. And the text made clear that she wants him. And and well, um, until the end, is that right, Sarah? At the end, do you think she's more self-aware? Because it's, the, I mean, maybe because it is the end, she can be. She works it out to a certain extent, right? But all she works out is that is that she was after the wrong guy. 
But what Rhett has what Rhett says to her as he's leaving is um, is basically that that she's kind of insanely obstinate and that she has to learn like to let go and that she has to learn when she's lost and she has to learn to accept defeat. And 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 she literally ends the story as he walks out the door saying, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn, which is the 1936 version of Up Yours. Um, like it's over lady i'm fed up to the teeth and he walks out and she ends this the novel and the film um plotting to get him back so he's literally said to her your insane obstinacy has driven us apart and she's like i shall finish the story with insane obstinacy <laughs> right <laughs> so 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 she learned some lessons but not the most important lesson um and and again i think mitchell's clear about that I, I, for me it's the most interesting aspect of the novel as a whole is that I think it's actually, for all its reputation, all of its reputation for sentimentality, and as I say, it's very sentimental in its view of racial politics, uh, and offensively so. Um, it's not at all sentimental in its view of love, of romantic love. It's deeply unsentimental about romantic love, and I think that's interesting. That one of the most famous epic romances of the 20th century is profoundly unsentimental about romantic and marital love, and is about how that breaks down irreparably except that it ends with her thinking she can get him back. So it's ambiguous. <laughs> well, but as you say, that's actually part and parcel of her whole character as well. So it's not really a departure at all. I, I love that. Um, and that's also made me rethink the book. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Um, all right, you bring up the the real world context, the sociocultural backdrop to this. We we have to talk about the book's language because that comes in for careful scrutiny in your book. Mitchell, of course, used and argued for the use of the N word in the book as being authentic language, and therefore legitimizes its use. Now, without going over the history of the word, how was it used in Gone with the Wind? How was it used in the Reconstruction and Gilded Age period? And and what does your book have to say about Mitchell's usage of it? Thanks. I think it's a really important point, but I I also appreciate your framing of it because I also think that that, for me anyway, is a, is a more fruitful way of talking about it than, as you say, going into the history of the word. We all know that. And um, and the choices that need to be made about whether to use it or not use it um, and, uh, you know, its high amount of sensitivity and how inflammatory it is. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so she argued that it was historically accurate and that that's why she was using it. If you actually look at really carefully how she uses it in the book, she's not wrong about one aspect of it. She's wrong about a couple of key things, but she's not wrong about one aspect of it, which is that she shows that that violent language became more prevalent during Reconstruction than it was during the Old South. Now, what she claims, which is deeply inaccurate, is she claims that enslavers didn't use racist language against the enslaved, which is insane. <laughs> I mean, it's just totally fatuous and easily disprovable by reading a single antebellum newspaper from the South, you know, from the, the period, right? Anywhere from the South. Um, literally, you could look at one in, you know, at random and you will see the N-word proliferating across the newspaper. And any historian of the period knows that. So it's completely ridiculous for her to suggest or, and actually state explicitly that they would never dream of using such a word. What I find interesting about that, though, is it means a, she recognizes that it's inherently racially violent. She recognizes that there's something problematic with the use or she wouldn't be making that distinction. She would be arguing that, oh, we've always used the word and it never did anybody any harm, right? That's the more obvious argument if you think there's nothing wrong with the word. She actually says, Scarlett knows not to use the word. She also knows not to use it to black people's faces, but that she can use it about black people. So she understands that there are contextual situational rules about how white people and when white people give themselves permission to use the word and how and when it might offend black people. She's wrong about how those rules work, if you see what I mean. But she's but she but the way she treats it makes clear that she recognizes that there were rules and that they shifted and that even white people knew that. Because that feeds right into the rest of the sort of uh, lost cause mythology that, you know, is is built up around minstrel shows or around exactly. blackface or indeed uh, Birth of a Nation, which you you mentioned in the book that Mitchell watched D.W. Griffith's movie Birth of a Nation. And that amazed me. So how do all of those sociocultural activities and the rules that surround them, as you point out, how does that infuse the book with this sort of lost cause mythology? Yeah. So the the other before I, there's one other just key thing to add, and then I can answer that question, I think, more fully, which is that what she also shows inadvertently with this use of the N-word, which basically increases in its use by white Southerners after emancipation, is in the book it also, and I'm not clear, by the way, on how conscious she was of that, but it is it is demonstrable that that happens. Um, it's also the case that demonstrably the case, that as the N-word gets used, it accompanies fantasies of racial violence 
by the white characters. So literally when Scarlett uses that word in her mind or verbalizes that word, she immediately follows it with fantasies of whipping black people, literally, right? And they're, and they, they're yoked, they go side by side. So, so my contention is that on some level, Mitchell also registered, I, I think this is definitely unconscious, um, registered that the word was an incitement to white violence, that it did operate in that way. And the text registers that reality, that racial reality, that that word went with racial violence and indeed was a not just a proxy for racial violence, but gave permission for racial violence. And indeed, one could argue actively incited racial violence. Um, and I think there's a strong case to be made that it did that. It worked exactly the way that uh, uh, anti-Semitic uh, metaphors of vermin worked to lead to extermination or to contribute to extermination in the Holocaust, um, for example. Um, and, and, you know, philosophers of language have shown the ways that uh, that similarly dehumanizing language uh, uh, contributed to the genocide in Rwanda, right? So that this language is directly correlated with uh, uh, extreme physical real world violence, right? And this is a really, really important. So, so she grows up with this culture that is basically, in my view, there, there are kind of two ways in, culturally that Reconstruction dealt with this. And I, and I think of it as the kind of twin, the tragedy and the comedy. There's the kind of the two faces of, the, of that cliche. Um, so that you, you and, and actually Ralph Ellison, the great black writer who gives us this insight. I mean, I really take this from him that, that what he calls the mask of the minstrel is a comic mask and what it does, it's in place to, um, to, to keep America from seeing the racial tragedy that it's built. So you create this comedy that distracts you from the murder that's literally happening, you know, backstage or, you know, in the alley behind the theater. And then everybody's laughing at this comedy of blackness on stage. And, and, and that's really what Birth of a Nation does. Birth of a Nation brings the two together because it, it, it thinks it's a tragedy of, it thinks it's a white supremacist tragedy, right? It's a tragedy about how America was almost destroyed by emancipating black people, but was saved by the Ku Klux Klan reinstating white supremacism. So it is an epic story of redemption, the, the idea that we opened with. And that's why it's called Birth of a Nation. It is the story that brings that idea of, re of redeeming the United States through the birth of a new nation, a white, purely white supremacist nation, um, which is very, very well established, right? I'm not interpreting this. Griffiths and Dixon, who wrote the novel that, that it's based on, were explicit about this in interviews at the time. Um, so that's what they saw it as being, and that's what they wanted to do. But Griffiths uses um, uh, blackface minstrelsy in the film, which means that he's also bringing in these kinds of comic traditions at the same time. So there's this very incongruous and, and problematic mix um, of these racist caricatures with this story that justifies real world racist violence. And what happened with Birth of a Nation when it came out in 1915 was that it actually incited the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. So the, the first Klan was born in the aftermath of the Civil War, as you've probably done episodes on this, um, as, a, uh, as a backlash um, and, and as a means to um, deny Black people the franchise, which is what it was specifically created to do. And again, there's a ton of explicit evidence. I go through this chapter and verse in the book um, showing how, how well documented this is. Um, but then federal forces wiped out that first clan, and it was uh, and it was re uh, um, reflamed. It was reinflamed, uh, literally and figuratively, 
um, after Birth of a Nation in 1915 inspired its its rebirth. And then we've never been without the Klan since. Um, and it was, you know, reborn on Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta, right where Margaret Mitchell was. So she was a teenager when this was, uh, when all this happened. She was born in 1900. So she exactly kind of follows the American 20th century. Um, and 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 so she grew up with these influences. She was not a fan of the second clan, but she believed that there was a fundamental difference between the first clan and the second clan, which historically and documentedly there was not. Um, and she also turned a blind eye to the way in which Birth of a Nation had actively fomented racist violence and it led to uh, racist homicide, it led to riots, it led to, there was a really interesting, I, I actually cited in the book, there was an interesting um, piece of scholarly work done a couple of years ago that, that tracked how as Birth of a Nation um, went around the country uh, regionally, how racist violence followed it and, and that they could track it within a week or two of it landing in a theater that you could find that, uh, that some kind of racist uh, uh, often a lynching or other kind of racist uh, um, uh, outbreak had followed it. So there's a, a at least a very strong coral, correlative pattern, um, uh, although we can't necessarily say it's definitely causal. It, sometimes, sometimes I think correlation sometimes is causation. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say. Now you're making me wonder about what happened when uh, Gone with the Wind reached uh, cinemas and what, yeah. what was the reaction weeks after? Because I mean, a lot of your you know, your, your take on the film as well. I mean, you, you call Gone with the Wind propaganda, right? So, I mean, I'd love to know what your thoughts are. I mean, you, I, I don't know, your book doesn't deal with this, but what happens in the cities and in the towns in the, when the, the, the release of the, the movie is out there and why is it propaganda? I mean, I, I believe your book and I, I actually think your book is, uh, along with Behold America, which in some ways these seem like uh, two halves of the same walnut, you know, like your, your, your writing style has gotten really, but, you know, really honed, but birth, uh, or Gone with the, the Wind is propaganda. Why? Mm. Well, I think that uh, for a couple of reasons, right? And and as you say, I, the, I didn't go into, the book was kind of winding up and it had already gotten a lot longer than it was supposed to be. Um, so I didn't go into what happened in the towns and cities across America. And actually partly because what I wanted to show was what happened in Europe, because it enters into uh, you know, it, it finished filming as the First World War began and it premiered during the phony war and it made its way across Europe as literally the Second World War was gearing up. So one of the things that I wanted to show was that it enters the United States in, in, in the midst of, so the book comes out in 1936, the film uh, premieres December 1939 and they wrapped filming at the end of August 39, so literally as the war was starting. And um, and the the so the the story of Gone with the Wind, novel and film, emerged into an ongoing and heated debate about American fascism at exactly that moment, and it's and it's it was a part of the story I really wanted to recover because we're familiar with those of us who've studied Gone with the Wind or study cultural history in the first half of the 20th century know that Gone with the Wind is often read as a depression era story. It's about surviving hunger. It's about surviving homelessness. It's about, you know, it's, it's about your relationship to the state and taxation. And so there are lots of ways in which it picks up depression era themes. And I try to talk about those in the book, but scholars have covered those well. And I didn't feel that that was, you know, kind of missing piece of the story, but it's never been talked about since it came out in the context of American fascism. But they talked about it in the context of American fascism and they related it to debates about American fascism. And so I wanted to recover those debates. Um, so 
and and then to understand the ways that it could travel abroad while there are fights happening around European fascism and the way that it it became it was it was incredibly popular in Nazi Germany and incredibly popular in uh, resistance France and incredibly popular in London during the Blitz and incredibly popular in the United States during this time right so both sides of a fight saw it as speaking to them even though you it doesn't speak to both sides of the fight right so. I think that it's it's propaganda for a lot of things. I think it's propaganda for what I call America's white myth about itself. It's propaganda for the idea that America had solved all of its problems and that uh, that we were the ones who were going to come in and and, uh, and and you know make the world safe for democracy when this is literally a story about anti about the triumph of anti democratic forces. <laughs> That's what this story is about. Um, and so it's 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 pro and that's why the subtitle of my book is the lies America tells itself not one lie it's a set of lies about our relationship to our own democracy and about how about culturally how robust that was um i mean you know one of the things that one of the kind of standard arguments for saying you know when people try to say that there was a kind of quasi fascist structure that took place in the deep south after the civil war and that's a case that, for instance, the great African American uh, historian W. E. B. Du, w. Can't say it too fast. W. E. B. Du Bois um, made in his Great Black Reconstruction in America in 1935, the year before Gone with the Wind came out, and he calls the imposition of white supremacist, uh, what we might now call a heron-voke democracy, he calls that fascist in his 1935 book. And people have read that as uh, um, polemical, you know, as a kind of rhetorical gesture trying to get audiences on board in the 30s. I think he was actually being quite specific personally. Um, and, and, and one of the arguments that people have made about saying that that's an inaccurate analogy is because they point out that elections were still held in the White South, right? It's like, well, Hitler held elections too. Um, and the point is, is that they were rigged elections with a, a preordained outcome. And they literally murdered people if they didn't get the outcome that they wanted, they murdered black legislators if they got uh, voted in. And the question is, would these supposed small D white Democrats who were apparently were told, you know, going, you know, that they were that they were abiding by the democratic process? Well, no, they weren't. And would they have if the federal government had insisted upon a full multiracial gover government in the South and had it, you know, enforced that, would we have seen another civil war, would we have seen more violent insurrections, more organized insurrections? I think that is an open question. So it's so it's propaganda for all the ways in which America wants to see itself as having restored unity after the civil war through a series of myths and claims about its own democratic processes that are historically demonstrably untrue. I just want to plug again your book, Behold America, which is your pre the book that you published previous prior to this one, um, because that takes us uh, down this rabbit hole of fascism in America and what it really looked like and ties together America first back in the, the, the 20s to America first in you know the 21st century. And that's why I say it's it's kind of two halves of the same walnut here. We're looking at democracy in America in both of these books. It's under the, the magnifying glass. And I'm not going to dwell on that. Too much more. I'm going to save a, a big question at the end about democracy in America, but I, I have a I, sort of. Can I just come in at one point on that? Just because. Yeah. Thank you for that. But also, I I absolutely uh, do see it that way. I see this book as a, as a follow up to Behold America, 
Uh, I mean, it's my next book, but it is, they are related. And it's also a prequel in some ways. It's going back to earlier origins and saying, look, where did this all come from? Because Behold America really just focuses tightly on the first decades of the 20th century. So I absolutely, I see them as kind of companion volumes. And, and I think of them actually as, yeah, I like that they're two halves of walnut, but I see them as siblings. Um, and, and, and they're telling different parts of a family story about America. And it's part of the family story that those of us in the family, you know, we're allowed to say bad things about our family, but nobody else is. It's like, I, I, I've taken that prerogative as an American to be like, look, I'm really mad at you right now. I still love you, but I'm super mad at you right now. And let's tell some stories about where we've gotten this wrong and where and whether we can try to, to correct our course. So but anyway, I just wanted to say, I do see it that way too. And thank you. Well, that's a way better metaphor than the walnut because you can't get mad <laughs> at a walnut. So I think that's super. Um, okay. Well, look, I want to ask a more technical question. I feel I'm obliged you, you know I'm uh, talking to you today from Ireland. There's this Irish connection that didn't come out in the book that I wanted to ask you about. Of course, O'Hara sounds pretty Irish. I'm guessing it's Irish. I don't know the backstory here, but the house is called Tara in Gone with the Wind. It's a reference to the mythical hill of Tara, which is rumored to be a place where the Irish high kings uh, resided and sat. What's the connection beyond Margaret Mitchell? Is there any connection to Ireland? I mean, there's often this uh, you know, the 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 Irish, they're often called the green and the black, and there's comparisons that are made in scholarship to the way Irish, the Irish were treated and the way transatlantic uh, slave, enslaved peoples were treated. I don't see the connection, but I know that there has been that connection made. Um, and I'm just wondering, maybe you could uh, enlighten us a little. Yeah. So, well, first of all, um, I, I do go into it, but but it is brief, I, I grant you. Um, and it's a, and there's a lot going on in the book. So so I understand that it, it could be missed, but I, I don't go into the the mythologies, the Irish mythologies that are there because it would be, I, I felt taking me too far straight. But I do go into um, her Irishness and its relationship to the immigrant American dream and the way that the story treats that. Um, and the way that the, the, the story mythologizes the Irish connection to the land, which I see as a way of sentimentalizing uh, white Americans clinging on to white Southern Americans, clinging on to property after the Civil War. So th this is really a story that's, that, you know, if, if this is a romance, it's not a romance between Scarlet and Rhett. It's a romance between Scarlet and Tara. And it's a romance between, therefore, what I think is that's a way of mystifying. It's a romance with property. And it's a romance with her rebuilding. It's an American dream story for the 20th and 21st century where the American dream is about upward social mobility and material rapacity. Um, and it's about her avarice. That's what it's about. Um, and, and Tara is a kind of veil for all of that stuff. Um, there, there are, um, so I, I do bring in um, the part where Rhett, for instance, says to her, um, you know, the O'Hara's might've been Kings of Ireland once, but your father was just a, mick, a smart mick on the make. Um, Part of what Mitchell is doing there is, is, is you know, it's kind of uh, um, bringing in uh, contemporary 30s ideas around Irish immigrants. Um, this is literally the moment in American culture where Irishness was shifting um, from being a kind of uh, subaltern position. Um, it's, you know, literally this is the generation of Joe Kennedy as it shifts from being um, your, you know, your immigrant mix uh, um, or, you know, Irish not wanted, uh, you know, um, Irish being seen as an immigrant threat 
um, and being indeed troped as the Black Irish, um, as you uh, as your question you know implies and, and gets into, um, and they're being and they're being uh, um, assimilated as white. And there's a lot of scholarship about this, about how culturally they become they go from being the Black Irish to being the White Irish. I have to say I have, I have Irish heritage here, so I so I feel some. Uh, since I, uh, my dad is a lot like Joe Biden, like, he thinks he's Irish. I'm like, Dad, you're not Irish. You're like fifth generation American. He's like, No, I'm Irish. I'm like, Dad, you're really not Irish. Um, but so I get that. Um, but so the so there's so there's some of that in the story. I think that the um, it, so it's about class positions, and and she's and she is trying to do something there. It's a little bit inconsistent, but she's interested in it. Um, in terms of the claims that the the fraudulent claims that are made today, the Propagandistic and politically motivated claims that are made that the um, that Irish uh, 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 why am I losing the word indentured workers were uh, equivalent to enslaved Black people have been widely debunked by serious historians. There are some excellent books about about it um, that I you know uh, commend to your listeners if they're not familiar with it. Um, I, as with um, the question about Karens, I had a question about whether I wanted to bring that in. Um, it, it felt like it was it was getting, I was, well, I would have to go back to a whole nother set of cultural stories and genealogies to, to bring it in. And ultimately what my, the, the way that I made those judgments and some people will disagree with them, but, the, but you have, as you know, writing books, you have to have some kind of rule of thumb that you just are like, here's how I'm gonna figure this out. Um, and mine was that if it came into Gone with the Wind, then it was legitimate. But that if it didn't come into Gone with the Wind, I would muddy my argument if I imported stuff from our political, because if my claim is that Gone with the Wind has something to tell us about our political moment, then it's illegitimate for me to import something from our political moment that isn't in Gone with the Wind. Then I'm distorting my argument. So I didn't see her implying that claim about the Black Irish because I believe it is, it has been manufactured laterally and because so it didn't exist in the thirties. So it wasn't one she was familiar with. So it's not there. So, so I didn't bring it in for that reason, but I do try to touch on, um, but I, I agree not as fully as it, as it could have uh, uh, on the, the importance of Irishness. The other really big theme from today that the novel doesn't really get into, it kind of does, um, is religion. And, and Scarlet's Catholicism also matters to the story a little bit, but it actually kind of drops her Catholicism. It gets less interested in her Catholicism as the story goes on. And I read it as a kind of shorthand for morality. But of course, religion is incredibly important to American politics today. And um, and I think, so it's the, the Irishness gets short shrift um, and, and religion, you know, doesn't really properly make its way into, into my account um, because I think Gone with the Wind doesn't really well, it does deal with the Irishness, but which is why it's there. Um, well, this is also why people listen to podcasts so they can get the the additional yeah. stuff. But I think you're, okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the DVD. You extra. know, your point, your point <laughs> about the whiteness and developing the idea of whiteness and Irish being very much a part of that transitioning from a racialized other or a, a subaltern, as you put it, uh, to you know an accepted white race is uh, is a, is a great story. I also think your point about the romance with property is a real big part of the Gilded Age that I really wanted to delve into because this is really in terms of Tara. In the later stages of your book's analysis, you bring us to Tara, you tell us the story of Scarlett's fight to survive the postbellum South, and it's really industrial capitalism that saves Scarlett and Tara, which is, you know, that's the end of the old South and the beginning of the new South. And to me, this is very much the story of the Gilded Age in that place. 
You tell us a little bit about how that happens and how it relates to the American dream, because you've written about the American dream so eloquently, not only in this book, but in Behold America. How, how does industrial capitalism fit in with all this? Um, thanks. Well, look, I mean, ultimately, that's I think gone, I think that one of the reasons why Gone with the Wind hit so hard in the moment that it did is because it's, it's this romance with capitalism. That's really what it's in love with is entrepreneurial capitalism. And it's and that's that's what it, it eroticizes the most. I mean. It's a, and I do talk about this actually that the that you know and I think you know, Scarlet and Rhett like they they we only see them having sex once in the novel right this like great epic love story right but they they, they triangulate their erotic their all their erotic frisson goes through talking about money and property and like and that's what they get off on like that's what they're fetishizing right and then and the story does that too and and the, the novel does it a lot more than the film does but it even the film does because it encourages us encourages us to like you know get into the sumptuous costumes and the settings and so there's this highly materialistic uh glamour that is you know veiling all of this and, and a lot of the erotics of the novel or of the story are, are kind of bound up um in that so it's absolutely a romance of capitalism that's what it's about um that's why it's a great american romance of the 20th <laughs> that's why it's part of the american dream right, absolutely yeah. <laughs> um and so the so it's about the rebuilding of um capitalist systems after the um the civil war for me one of the um i, I don't want to call it inspiration but one of the things that that i saw as i was looking at the book again that made me think oh, I actually have something to say here. And there's something that needs to be said about this story that I don't think has been said before, um, which is when I realized as I was looking at it, and I had originally gonna, had been going to do a short version of the book about like statues, and I was going to use it as a way to understand what the controversies around statues. And, and then it became clear that to do that, I had to explain so much more and there was so much more going on. But when I was, so I was rereading the book, thinking about kind of, you know, you know, the very early stages of like, what kind of book was I going to do? And and I reread Gone with the Wind for the umpteenth time. And I suddenly saw that she, that Scarlett rebuilds her fortune, not just through capitalism and through the retention of property, but specifically through the hiring of convicts and the building of the carceral, carceral industrial complex. So it's not just industrial capitalism, it's carceral industrial capitalism. And that's very specifically what this story shows is that Scarlett makes her money immediately after the war by uh, through literal reconstruction, through the booming lumber business um, after the destruction of Atlanta. And at first she tries to hire what the novel calls free darkies, which is to say emancipated black people. Um, and then she doesn't want to work them anymore because she has to pay them free wages. And so she hires convicts who she can treat like the enslaved. And, um, and, and, then, and then basically that creates the system that it, and so it feeds into the the realities of the ways in which um, black people were reincarcerated after the Civil War during Reconstruction, and 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 Gone with the Wind is is um, fictionalizing that, but and mythologizing it because she only deals with white convicts, which is a kind of complicated side thing. But I go into it in detail in the book. Um, so the so absolutely the 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 story about the American dream that is being told here, which completely resonated with 1930s audiences is about the importance of retention of property, the way that home can sentimentalize that, but it's about white ownership of property as the, you know, as the new deal is being built, the importance of this idea of home ownership as the, as the central pillar of Roosevelt's selling of the new deal to white middle-class America, that this is what's gonna get us out of the depression. And this is the promise that America is making of the little house with the white picket fence. Um, 
and of generational improvement and all of those kinds of, of promises are fundamentally bound up in what rapidly becomes uh, Cold War democratic capitalism, right? This idea that, that, that American democracy and capitalism are completely intertwined and ultimately becomes what we call neoliberalism. Um, and for that, you have to read Gary Gersel's new book on uh, neoliberalism, your readers, I'm sure you already have, your readers need to read Gary Gersel's new book on the neoliberal order, which is just absolutely, you've got it right there on your shelf, exactly, <laughs> I knew you would. Um, but, but and, and that's kind of where it takes us, right? So it's the American dream being rewritten in that way. The other thing I want to say about the American dream though right now, which I find really fascinating, and I, and I haven't written about it at length yet, partly because I'm tired, um, but uh, partly because I, 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 it's in flux and I, and I kind of, I'm not sure what, um, how it's going to play out. But, you know, even when I started Behold America, which was immediately after Trump was elected in 2017, um, if, you know, I was looking at polls for what Americans in 2017, uh, you know, thought the American dream meant. And I did like a BBC Four um, a documentary just before that in the run up to, to 2016. I think in 2016 to the run up to the election or maybe 2015. Anyway, where I went to America and literally like it did man on the street interviews talking to people in front of Trump Tower about what they thought the American dream meant. And from like 2015 to 2017, I had all kinds of evidence to show that people still said it's the immigrant experience, it's upward social mobility, what we were just describing, that kind of old school idea of the American dream. Now there are increasingly polls right now showing that uh, a growing number of Americans, and I think maybe even a majority, although I'd have to double check if that's correct, will answer the question of the American dream with one word, and that word is freedom. Hmm. And that is a real ideological shift. Um, and it has huge ramifications. It's also extremely abstract, isn't it? I mean, whereas the tangible, free sort of, I guess, 2015 view of the American dream is about, you know, upper mobility, social equality, you know, uh, you know, making making more uh, out of less. Now, freedom. What, I mean, what is freedom? I mean, as whatever Eric you want said, it to it's, be. <laughs> yeah, it's whatever you want it to be. Right, right. I want to I want to bring you back to the. All right, the first thing that you said today was about we're really good at telling stories about union we're really bad at telling the history of american division and you sort of seized on my my closing question so this is it what in the world is it about treason that americans are collectively unwilling to admit or prosecute it's it's a country where patriotism i mean is just so important and you and i grew up there we have this unique vantage point where we live abroad now. And the thing that confuses me the most about America is why is treason not something that gets into the court system and puts either insurrectionists or, you know, Confederates in prison? Well, um, first of all, I'm not sure that that's not going to happen. Um, I'm genuinely not sure. I think it's, you know, we're talking in the midst as indictments are dropping around Donald Trump. Um, and he's literally just been indicted, uh, you know, 31 counts of the Espionage Act. Um, so it remains to be seen. I, I think that the word treason probably isn't going to be the one that they try to prosecute. I think that my sense is that partly that there's a pragmatic legal answer to that, which is that it's difficult to prosecute in the United States because of the ways the laws are set up. And so prosecutors are actually going for things they can get. Um, rather than the kind of principled position around what we might think of as treason, but recognizing that that's actually, um, if the goal is to get somebody behind bars and to stop them from being a you know reckless danger to the nation, you know, 
then you do the Al Capone thing of getting them on tax evasion and that'll do. Um, so I think there's a pragmatic answer, which which I think have to defer to lawyers, but I think that might be part of it. I think that culturally we have a deep, it's, it, that we have two deep um, a kind of psychological phantasmatic commitments. Um, one is to this idea of unity. Um, even though we know we're divided, there's this idea of unity that that we that we cling on to, and um, and that at least that our version of it is, and and they go together is is this fun, fundamental conviction about American innocence. Um, if you have if you start from a premise that our country is exceptionally innocent, and now many would say God givenly innocent. Um, well, that's a terrible phrase, but you know what I mean. Um, that um, then, then your guy committing treason is a conceptual impossibility. Where, for those of us who are on the other side of the ideological aisle, we have no problem with the idea that this man has committed treason, and and many of us believe that he has, and and see evidence before us saying showing that he has. Um, so the role of ideology and the role of institutional uh, of institutionalism is the other one, right? Is the ways in which America has committed itself to ideology above all, I think, and um, because it's it is what was holding us together, were these the, these ideologies ideologies that we created that we believed and told ourselves were the right ideologies, the good ideologies, and. Uh, and it turns out that the idea that that our ideologies were no better than anybody else's ideologies, um, and that they um, and that they're just as subject to uh, um, corruption and hijacking as you know as ideologies in the Soviet Union were. Um, I think that we are currently, we the United States are currently engaged in an experiment that is as radical as the Soviet Union was in its way but an unacknowledged one, which is a radical experiment in whether capitalism can substitute for democracy, whether capitalism is, is better than democracy. There are plenty of people on the right arguing that now who are literally saying that capitalism should supplant democracy because it will be, it, it, is, it is the right way to run things and that the free market should be what drives everything. And that and they're arguing for neo-feudalism. I mean, there are people literally arguing for this stuff. Um, so I think that, that the, the, until we look at ourselves clearly, be able to tell histories of our own divisions, be able to recognize the ways that we're wildly ideological, be able to recognize the ways in which we are engaging in social experiments that we don't even identify as such, we won't have anything like the identity, the stable identity that would be required to recognize treason when we see it. I think that's fascinating. I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna leave you with this. I think about it a lot. Uh, Carl Schurz, the Civil War, soldier and later on senator and anti-imperialist uh, had a great play on my country right or wrong he said my country right or wrong when right to be kept right and when wrong to be put right and i think that's a lovely way of thinking about that that's really good yeah about yeah. american patriotism i have a ton more questions for you sarah and i'd love to spend as you said earlier four hours talking about the book i could i could easily do it but I'm just I'm going to leave it there and I'm going to encourage everyone, obviously, to, to pick up a copy of this book. It's really wonderful. It tells us so much about uh, our our past and our present. And I think by also Behold America, because if you read the two of them together, you get a really deep understanding of, of where we've been and where we're going, perhaps. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your questions. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. 
You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Thank you.